Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Nick C. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'll be talking with Bakila Bukharbaeva about her book, The Vanishing Generation, Faith and Uprising in Modern Uzbekistan. That book was published in 2019 by Indiana University Press. Bakila Bukharbaeva is a former Central Asian correspondent for the Associated Press, and she is the winner of the Paul Klebnikov Courage in Journalism Award. Bagila, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. Bagila, welcome. And it's it's a real pleasure to have you um, on, on the show today to talk about your book, um, which I read. A, it was a real heavy book, but it was also a, a really great page turner. Um, and I'm excited to to hear a little bit more about the writing process and, and how you came up with this project. Um, and, you know, when I was reading, I realized that this is both a personal story and a story about much bigger things that were happening in Uzbekistan um, since the fall of the Soviet Union. And so I'd like to start off by asking you about your own background, your neighbors in Tashkent, and how kind of your personal life and, and these bigger events in Uzbekistan kind of are tangled up in the narrative that you've produced here in this book. Yes, the book is basically about uh, years after the Soviet collapse and uh, the first president after Uzbekistan's uh, independence, Islam Karimov. Um, like I grew up in the Soviet Union uh, but luckily, um, towards the end of my school studies, uh, secondary school, the Soviet Union was already on the brink of a collapse. It was prehistoric years, and that kind of influenced my decision to become a journalist. Um, my father was a journalist, and um, I guess it was genes, but at the same time, it was all about what was happening around us at the time. Um, so we were growing up in 
central Tashkent in this big apartment block full of different people, very mixed um, ethnic backgrounds and social backgrounds. And um, and so what, um, like what got you interested? So you mentioned that, that um, you kind of started your career as a journalist partially because of um, perestroika and the things that were happening around you, but also um, maybe you saw your father um, in his career as a journalist. Um, when did you decide to, I mean, tell us about, about your preparation as a journalist. Did you go to university or did you find some work somehow? How did that career develop over time? Yes, my father was a host of a television program on Uzbek TV. Uh, we were ethnic Kazakhs, and he was making a program specifically in Kazakh for the Kazakh community of Uzbekistan. Um, and he was also like in his spare time was writing novels, <laughs> and. Um, but I think I was saying that I wanted to be a journalist since I was a child, like even things since I was three years old. But of course, I don't know, it was maybe uh, my parents or my dad who taught me to say that. I don't, I'm not sure. But yes, when I was finishing school, it was prehistoric time when suddenly all the newspapers started writing all these exciting revelations about what that the Soviet history, what was really happening uh, uh, in the country or in the past, looking back and everything, and it was a time. And then I really got excited seeing how important this profession was. And that's when I decided to go to university. I went to Tashkent State University. But then it was 89 when I joined the university, and two years later, the Soviet Union was gone. And uh, the course just fell apart because it was all based on, on Soviet you know, books and uh, ideology and everything. And uh, the, our lecturers didn't know what to teach us, and we would just come and hang around the corridors or sit there and uh, not knowing what to do and not knowing exactly what we were training for. And I personally didn't know what I was like, a medium would be working for because uh, in uh, in Russia where all that central television and big media newspapers state radio stations they were still yes kind of going and uh, but we were already Uzbekistan a different country where we had to start everything from scratch or well, we had like all Soviet kind uh, of newspapers like Pravda Vostok and all those like copies of bigger central newspapers that provincial kind of and, uh, and I couldn't imagine working for any uh, local media so kind of idea of becoming a journalist was becoming you know, fake something I was just like we were wasting our time basically <laughs> my and my fellow students and um and then I started studying because there was so much free time. I started learning English, thinking, well, <laughs> this, I don't know, that sounded interesting. And uh, at the time, some small businesses were opening, some foreigners started appearing, and um, 
started learning English mostly with an idea of maybe translating uh, for some foreign companies or working as a receptionist or something like this, small. And and so, mm-hmm. um, so to get this straight, so um, while you're learning English, are you still technically enrolled in, in the university or did you finish your degree and kind of... Um, not find an immediate outlet, so then you kind of drifted into a different area? Like, how does that, I mean, so you said you started in 88 or 89, I can't remember. 89, Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so literally your studies were kind of cut in half by the, this, this Mm -hmm. monumental event. So did you finish university? Yeah, I did. Um, But yeah, I started learning English while I was still enrolled on course um, because uh, we, we had also a group of foreign students studying there like doing journalism from India, Sri Lanka, African countries it was like Soviet Union would like from friendly countries invite students and give them the scholarships and and yes maybe because of their presence at an hours yes yeah learning English and um, yeah when I finished the university I started working as a receptionist for some Pakistani company which was doing small business or looking for ways to do some business in Uzbekistan and I did some translating work but then luckily uh, the BBC uh, I saw an advert in a newspaper saying that BBC is opening an office in Tashkent and they need English speakers and also speak local languages. And yes, and I went and I passed the test and uh, yes, and I got the job, but it was completely unexpectedly. And uh, so, yeah, then I just <laughs> stayed in the profession this way. Yeah, and, and so this is how... At some point, if I remember correctly, like you, you either continue to work with the BBC and you also work with the Associated Press. Um, I know you go to Moscow at some point, or at least you're working with um, Moscow-based kind of, uh, I guess, the Associated Press. Um, how did that happen? No, yeah, after joining the BBC, like you know, two three years, in two three years, I got a grant to. To masters in journalism in, in the UK. I came mm. to London, spent a year here, which also helped me and boost, boosted my confidence that I knew that now I could work for bigger news organizations, uh, writing in English. And, and yes, that helped me to get the job with the AP. Again, like about two years later, yeah, I got a call. No, yeah. Mm asking if I would be interested to join them. Yeah. And then, yes, uh, I worked in Central Asia, covering Central Asia for several years, and then uh, worked a year in Moscow, in Moscow Bureau for the Associated Press. Mm-hmm. It was 2007, eight. yeah. Mm-hmm. And this, um, yeah, and so this is kind of, Interesting because one part of the book, we, we follow your kind of story as a journalist and, and how this develops. Um, but your book is also unique because of how you bring kind of um, another analysis of, of several individuals, many of whom you either interviewed later or who you knew, in some cases, knew from a young age. 
Um, so, for instance, this this family um, who in the book you re- you refer to this young woman as Zuhra, um, but you talk about her siblings, her parents, um, and they kind of grow up next to you. Um, there are parallels within your life. There are similarities. There are moments when your trajectories go in different ways. But it, it's kind of interesting to see how these lives end up overlapping in, in interesting ways. But could you tell us a little bit about um, their upbringing, that family, mm-hmm. and how they were representative or unique of their generation? And also kind of share a little bit about how um, the question of religion, right, which is at the center of, of your book, kind of plays into their lives. Yeah. I, when I left the AP in 2008, um, basically because I was tired of these very difficult stories, um, because you go around and speak to people and they tell you horrible things, it was really hard. And, um, and I returned to Tashkent and then and I was back in my neighborhood, and I see this neighbor every day or, like, quite often, who is um, um, the father of Zohra and, obviously, her siblings. Uh, and Zohra is my childhood friend. We grew up in the same apartment block, playing together. But then she went to Uzbek school, and I went to Russian school, and that kind of way. We didn't uh, kind of contact much each other later when growing up, but it was from more like early years. Um, but anyway, you're still in the same neighborhood, in the same apartment block. You see them, you say hello, and uh, you know what's going on in their lives too, because you know from neighbors. Yeah, your mom comes and tells you, oh, in this family, this happens. So they're always in the picture. They're like people you've known for like for many many years, and uh, what happened with their family? Uh, basically, the father, Faslitin Aka, Faslitin Aka, he he was a forestry minister in Soviet Uzbekistan. Well, he was quite a high-ranking official, and. Um, and Zohra, his daughter, and uh, one of eight, I think, siblings. And uh, Zohra had, yeah, two older sisters and then five brothers. And uh, and one of her brothers, or elder brothers, eventually becomes, the, later becomes the underground Islamic preacher. And her youngest brother also goes to study to um, Egypt and ends up in Yemen and then ends up as a refugee uh, in Sweden. He can't come back because he's also seen as an extremist. And, uh, and Zuhra Mari is this young man who also, he's an Arabist, studied Arabic, and then he goes to Saudi Arabia for five years. At the time, the Uzbek government was completely unaware of anything and that about the ideology that uh, official ideology of Saudi Arabia, which is Wahhabism, it's a very fundamentalist interpretation of Islam. So they send like young men there and they come back with completely changed belief. And um, so Zohra Mari is this young man who had 
studied in Saudi Arabia. And then later, this elder brother goes to jail, I mean, gets jailed, and her husband disappears completely because he was also giving underground lessons. And Usman, the youngest brother, is like, yes, completely cut off and somewhere stranded outside, somewhere in the world. And uh, and Zuhra's husband disappeared in 2004, and she hasn't heard from him since. Nobody knows, like, what happened. And, um, of course, it's pretty much clear that this is a government abduction. And um, so I know all this about their family. And then, because of my journalistic uh, experience, all the stories I was writing was very much focused on this because that was the main thing that was happening in Uzbekistan under Karimov. He basically, his main obsession, his main policy or whatever was to suppress his Islamists, suppress, yeah, he like, so it was an endless campaign uh, rounding up these young people who were seen as like trying to uh, preach or study uh, extremists. Uh, could you tell? Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more? Because I think, especially for some listeners, maybe who aren't as familiar with this story, um, tell us more about kind of um, the practice of Islam in the late Soviet Union and how these kind of changes. Like, is this a new change in government attitude to be even more repressive under Karimov, or is this a continuation of Soviet policies? Um, mm-hmm. You know, how do you how do you see this? this moment in the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s, as the government deals with this question of Islam. Because, you know, what I'm hearing is is kind of something interesting that, like, uh, the government is allowing, um, in the 90s and 2000s, allowing these young men to go to Saudi Arabia, but on the other hand, they're kind of suppressing um, religious practice. So, um, yeah, could you talk a little bit more about that? Just to finish the first question, because, uh, yes, and when I see this man and knowing the whole story of family, and I also felt like, well, reporting on all this, I was kind of using these people for sound bites and, uh, yes, just writing short stories because it's a wire service and then leaving them to whatever. <laughs> to their fates and uh, and I felt like I wasn't able to tell their story properly and understand them myself personally uh, what was happening to them what they were going through and just the whole question of what happened why this Islam, Islam became an issue in, in Uzbekistan after the Soviet collapse so that's, that's why I decided to write this book and yes with religion, I think it's pretty um, simple because uh, in the Soviet Union there was this one ideology imposed on everyone, but it was giving everyone uh, a clear picture of who you are, what your future is, what's good, what's wrong, and uh, who our enemies are and everything. Yes, we're Soviet citizens. And building communism and things like that. And, uh, but at the same time, there was this uh, very 
uh, organized structure of life, economic structure, yes, you were taken care of from early age. You go to this the state-funded nurseries and, and then schools and then university, everything is free and you, you have medical uh, service also free and then you get your pension and there are also sanatoriums for workers. Everything was taken care of, yeah, and uh, don't have to think about anything. And when all that's removed and uh, people uh, start to look for something else, some new explanations of like a story about themselves and how to live and what what we are striving for in this life. And, and um, because Islam had been like forcibly suppressed on this, I mean, by the Bolsheviks and all that history of violence, you know, like closure of mosques and repressing and jailing imams and everything. It stays, yes, in this uh, collective memory. And then when, um, and because there were mosques, of course, later in the Soviet Union, but imams and all these preachers, they went through the Soviet system of Islamic education. Everything was controlled, what they said and whatever. It was a, a system of its own, like you know, the Islamic. And so again, so that people don't trust these Soviet imams, and uh, and uh, they're ready to believe anything that um, this Islam is wrong. But they're ready to believe anybody who comes and says this is true Islam. This is how you have to practice, including very like minor details, how, how which way you turn when you pray, how you finish it, how you like. Nodding or rubbing your hands or anything, yeah, all this everything becomes an issue, everything becomes like yes, disputed and debated, and we have this explosion of like new preachers who uh, who are basically um, maybe just charismatic people and like some and ambitious people with big egos who think they can lead people, they know the truth. And um, so that was the picture, yeah, after the Soviet collapse, some young new preachers emerged. And, and then we have this completely ignorant, mostly ignorant uh, population and led by similarly, mostly similarly ignorant new creatures. It's all very complicated. How, I think every religion, um, every ideology gets eventually distorted and in many, many different ways. And there will be always people who become too fanatical about one or another idea or people who proclaim themselves to be these new interpreters of better interpreters of one or another idea. Actually, we've seen that so many times in history. And, um, yeah, but and but people always want some kind of a story to tell <laughs> to themselves <laughs> about themselves. And yeah, so. It was just uh, inevitable, I think, what happened. Yeah, so some people fell for radical interpretations, some people fell for other 
less radical interpretations of Islam, yeah. depending on where they were coming from and their own inclinations, yeah, where they lived, yeah. And so we, you've talked a little bit about kind of how um, individuals, communities in, in different parts of Uzbekistan um, kind of uh, dealt with this kind of opening up of some sort um, of, of religious practice. Um, but you, you kind of also mentioned that that came with um, potential for kind of corruption or um, misunderstanding of, of um, Islamic practice, right? Um, which is understandable. Um, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the government side of things. So, um, you know, you've mentioned uh, the former president of Uzbekistan, Islam Karimov, uh, a little bit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about his right? Like, when does he come to power, his background, and um, also share a little bit about why the government, why you think the government's response, um, you know, by the I guess by the late '90s and especially early 2000s was one um, that was especially harsh. I would say, especially violent. Um, yeah, given the Kari- given the stuff you talk about in the book. Yeah, Karimov was appointed as like number one uh, official of Uzbekistan, which is the first secretary of the Uzbek Communist Party at the time in 1989, and he was appointed by Gorbachev. And uh, he he was at the time Karimov, um, a regional governor, like regional boss of Surkhandaria, sovereign Surkhandaria region, and um, relatively unknown, but... Uh, the background to this is that prior to that, for several years, uh, there was a big um, a scandal around the Uzbek communist leadership like unfolding because it was a huge corruption investigation into inflated cotton uh, production figures. And Kazakhstan was like a cotton plantation of uh, the Soviet Union, one of the and uh, so that was the main crop, and uh, the Moscow demanded more and more production, and uh, Uzbek officials in Uzbekistan were trying to meet those demands and those targets, which were going up and up. And there was, yes, a lot of uh, inflating and the bribery going on around that and going up to the Kremlin. And but um, so. For several years, there was this cotton case, unfolding, and they were jailing hundreds of Uzbek officials for all that corruption around cotton production. And uh, so the Uzbek leadership was a bit like um, shaken by all that and, um, and distrusted and demoralized and... Uh, Needed any, and there was there were other things happening too, like ethnic violence in the Ghana Valley and everything. So, situation was pretty harsh in Uzbekistan, and then they want to appoint somebody new, and they choose Karimov. How exactly that happened, I don't know, because it's all these channels and officials putting in words for each other. No, but it, it is that he was seen as relatively clean. Uh, Maybe only because 
he wasn't known at the time. So yes, in 89, he becomes uh, the first um, secretary of the Uzbek Communist Party. And then the Soviet Union collapses. Like by default, he is the, like now the leader of a new independent nation. And, uh, and, uh, and then he starts maneuvering, starts finding, yes, yeah, starts thinking how to stay in power as long as possible, or at least not to lose it, yes, immediately at, the, at that moment. Yeah, so um, because of Perestroika, uh, uh, the political situation was, in Uzbekistan was unstable. There were new like uh, parties emerging, and uh, it, it all became very uh, lively and animated. And uh, and of course, all the talk was about more freedom, more democracy, and everything, which meant for Karimov going and um, uh, facing elections and um, yes, and uh, proving for himself as a leader or staying as a leader through yes, going yeah through elections in a proper way and. Uh, so he was quite nervous at the time, not sure, and in, uh, about yes, his own future, and he would be able to stay in power. And he was maneuvering. And then uh, the first presidential elections in um, were scheduled for in this December or January nine uh, for December ninety one or January ninety two, but end of 91 and yes and then he goes around the country on this um, election tour and goes to Fergana Valley and there he uh, there was this episode which I think um, many believe probably really set him like firmly against uh, religion or Islam or any kind of attempt to like Islamic revival in Uzbekistan when he started seeing it as a huge, huge threat to himself, his own power. That was in Namangan. He came and then when he was leaving, um, this uh, like um, the huge demonstration started. The people were young men were protesting. Uh, he's not meeting them, but they were um, under the kind of leadership of someone, uh, this young man called Tahir Yuldosh, who started uh, this vigilante group, who was very um, charismatic, but with a lot of anger in him. And he found a lot of following there. And he started basically preaching Islam to everyone. And they were trying to control, I mean, patrol streets and basically replace uh, the authorities there based on Islamic values or rules. And so his supporters started a huge demonstration and Karimov was forced to return and he faced this huge crowd and Tahir Yildosh humiliated them, him strongly in front of that crowd, like not letting him speak. And he could see how Tahir Yildosh had absolute control over that 
big crowd, which was quite angry and scary. And Karimov uh, made a lot of promises, like uh, speaking to that crowd uh, up to like a referendum on the Islamic State, and like Friday will be a free uh, like weekend and, and things like that. And and uh, so he was pretty shaken, I think. By that meeting, and uh, he goes back, and then after once he has secured his position as president, he slowly starts his like revenge and campaign against um, all independent Islamic preachers. And yes, and eventually it becomes. Like, yeah, they tar- start targeting uh, leaders, of course. Ahir Yildashvay pretty soon will be forced to flee to Tajikistan, which was uh, amid the civil war at the time, and uh, which was also very frightening to uh, Karimov. Uh, he made him very insecure. And then he started targeting other preachers in Targana Valley, uh, disappearing them and everything. Uh, and then eventually, because the message from him, from the leader, was like absolute ruthless treatment of these men and all suspicious people, so it eventually became a very, very bloody, uh, cruel, absolutely atrocious campaign. And uh, security services, interior uh, ministry, they were all given absolutely all power to do anything. and. And I think he unleashed the lowest instincts in people and, um, yes, um, and torture and suffering, all that, those methods they used, and they were horrific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and and these these policies kind of continue to develop in the 1990s um as as the 1990s progress and as you say like the state security bureau the snb which is kind of the um, successor of the the uzbekistan uh, kgb from soviet period um is also really involved in this and um yeah, you even devote um, one specific chapter to this really infamous prison um, that's built, I think, in 1998 or 1999, um, but which, you know, today, even today in Uzbekistan is pretty notorious. So this is in um, kind of the northwest part of Uzbekistan in Karakul, Pakistan. Could you tell us a little bit more about 
um, this prison and your kind of experience there as a journalist? And, and what does this kind of, how does this testify to the kind of um, extreme uh, repression that, that the, the Uzbek state was engaged in at the time? Yes, by 1999, uh, the campaign like took shape of a serious like uh, uh, and uh, kind of a serious form, uh, and the jails were filling up with these alleged extremists, and so they opened this new prison in Karakal, Pakistan, in northwestern Uzbekistan, and it's. Uh, it's uh, like a, it's a very arid uh, climate, very harsh climate, and uh, the site is a former site, unfinished or abandoned site of the Soviet space project uh, called Buran, where it was a spaceship that which was planned to rival shuttle, the US shuttle. And uh, so this abandoned concrete site with few buildings for military, and it was turned into a prison, just like. Um, mm. um, it became known uh, in 2002 when news uh, came that two of the inmates uh, were practically boiled to death there, which went like tortured with boiling water on. And, um, and, and this prison was specifically for these extremists, uh, religious extremists alleged. And, um, and of course, there were lots of questions about what was going on there. And um, from relatives of the inmates, we were hearing that, yeah, it's absolutely harsh and uh, inhumane treatment there and uh, people were dying and tortured to death and regularly and generally we as journalists really wanted to know what was going on there but at the time uh, the United States had a military base and air base in Uzbekistan after 9-11 so they are in November 2001, they already started arriving there in, in southern Uzbekistan, next to the Afghan border. So, Uzbek government, Karimov's government, was cooperating with the US government in this war on terror. And uh, at the same time, of course, the US government was talking to Karimov about issues of democracy and human rights. and. Uh, uh, so to speak, and um, and because and a few journalists were allowed to work without much uh, hindrance, uh, meaning if they were working for international organizations, like uh, me included. So somehow in 2003, we got a permission to visit just like just because of this. From both sides, the U.S. and Uzbek governments from both sides were trying to make this appearance of working on these issues. So we were allowed to visit. Well, I find that any prison is a, is an inhumane thing. 
yeah, imprisonment of one person by another person. I don't know how, but when you are inside a facility like that and you imagine people living there day after day for years, um, especially in a place like Jaslik, like it's desert, salty air, salty soil, nothing grows there. And then you fly to Nukus, this Karakal, Pakistan's capital, then you drive 100 kilometers to a railway station, which is <laughs> one hut in the middle of the desert. And then the train comes and you travel to this settlement called Jaslik. And after that, you there is no road leading to the prison itself. You have to you need a four wheel car, uh, yeah, vehicle to reach there, drive across the desert for a couple of hours. I can't remember now, like several hours, shaking and inside. And then you arrive there. And, um, yes, it was very hard. But of course, like everything was prepared for our visit, uh, everything is clean, beds are made up, all the inmates lined up and told what to say and everything. But, but still, some inmates managed to whisper to us a few things. And, uh, and we were always accompanied by the prison boss and by another official who traveled from from Tashkent and there were all the wardens and other people working there around us. So not that much freedom, but still just to see this place, it was important, important. Um, and to see all these young people from another Kind of end of the country, which is like 2,000 kilometers or something, coming from this lush green valley, living in, in this box behind bars. Um, it was difficult. But of course, we couldn't get too much, but we, from inmates that did get enough, I think. But the main thing was to get the feel of the place. And, yeah, but I think. I think it was announced last year or something that uh, the new government has closed it. Many summer rights activists are saying they're questioning it. But so I'm not sure what happened, but definitely, I mean, looks like it might be kind of uh, close to being completely closed or something. But the government, this new government understands that it's too big a. Problem, image problem to keep this just like there um, because, yeah, too many bad things are, I think, yeah, associations and, yeah, and I think there's no need, no need to keep people in a place like that. <laughs> I mean, what is that, yeah. I kind of wanted to ask about that. I'm going to try to tie a couple things together and, and I'd be curious to hear what you have to say. Because I know another, um, you know, you, you, you had this uh, visit to the uh, Just Lick prison. You also, um, you were there during these Andijan events that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but, I, but I am curious, you know, because you're talking now about the 
here's the way of government and, and how they're trying to change their international image. Um, what role, you, you, you commented on this briefly, but I'd like to hear more about it. You, you kind of talked about, okay, the United States after 9-11 has this relationship with Uzbekistan. On the one hand, they're pushing the war on terror. On the other hand, they're kind of nominally demanding Uzbekistan um, kind of conform to some standards of human rights, et cetera. And I mean, you, you kind of indicated that there, there's some kind of contradiction here. What role, in, from your perspective, what role did the events of 9-11 and this, the kind of international agreements between Uzbekistan, kind of just the international climate, uh, contribute to contribute to or justify um, Karimov's kind of repression of, of Islamic practice in Uzbekistan? I think Karimov pretty much, yeah, uh, it's pretty clear to me that Karimov benefited from the U.S. war on terror because he could say, look, I am fighting terrorism at home too. Yeah, I am part of this. Yeah global fight and um, and I think when we talk about 9-11 and what happened after that and this war and terror, I think it's, it's a similar thing to what uh, how Karimov used uh, perceived Islamist threats, terror threat uh, to abuse power and in the same way um, the United States abused power yes to Mm-hmm. In the name of fighting terrorism, we know Guantanamo, we know Abu Ghraib, we know, you know this, this collateral damage, which numbers in like hundreds of thousands of people and millions displaced, and hundreds of thousands of people dead and millions displaced and everything. And, and we know about the U.S. cooperation with like close ties with Saudi Arabia. We're in Yemen, everything there is just too much, and it's yeah, uh, yeah. So it is uh, sad. It is disappointing that there is that this has become yeah a way this Islamism has become a convenient of. Uh, a scarecrow and uh, an excuse for some power to serve their ends. And uh, there are just too many, too many uh, victims, innocent victims in this war on terror. So in, in, that's the parallel that I see that, yeah, after 9-11, Karimov's abuse of power and to his own ends and the U.S. or Western views of power to their own ends, which is very sad. <laughs> yeah, and and um, these, I mean, you kind of see a connection there, right? Too with um, these events that that happened in Andijan in in two thousand four, two thousand five. Um, I think some listeners will be familiar with this this is kind of a a well-known episode in in especially u.s uzbekistan relations um but could you tell us a little bit about those events um who was involved how things developed and also your personal experiences because you 
um, I think with the Associated Press, quickly go to Andijan once once news of this comes out. Um, what did you experience there? Um, and yeah, ironically, this this um, you know we just mentioned that you can you can kind of draw a line between uh, 9/11 U.S. war on terror and uh, Karima's response to these events, but ironically, this actually ends up um, kind of tempor- up until very recently ending official relations between the two countries. Um, but yeah, could you, sorry, could you tell us a little bit more about your experiences um, in Andijan? Yeah, the Andijan is a, a very interesting story because uh, in that post-Soviet Islamic revival, like in my book, I look at what was happening in Tashkent. There are students who find imams to follow, and there is this Zohra's family in their kind of urban uh, young people who go to study abroad and come back with this knowledge, and they try to spread it, and, and that's one story. And they end up being blacklisted. And But in Andijan, it's, a, it's an emergence of completely unique uh, sect, Islamic sect, uh, like uh, on this uh, like Uzbek soil. I mean, and, um, and the leader, Akrom Yildoshev, um, was a very charismatic, another charismatic person who just studied, uh, read Koran in Uzbek and decided that now he knows all the answers, like he knows how to create a fair, good society and uh, how everything, all the roles should be distributed and everything, and uh, how to run economy, open businesses and all these close ties between the creation of cells and the structure of power and again, recruiting new members and everything, they become really big in, in, in Andijan. They run businesses, successful and everything. And until in yeah, 2004, uh, the Gaportis begin to crack down on that group and they arrest like 23 leaders. And Akram Yulashev was already in jail. He was basically still running it, um, the whole thing from jail. And uh, and in 2004, uh, these three, 23 leaders who are officially like, yes, owners of businesses, and uh, but they're part of this structure, Akramiya, or they don't call themselves like that, but this, sect, uh, part of the structure, so that all the employees are members of the sect and their families are members of the sect and they have their own system of like managing finances and everything. So in 2005, in February, they go on trial, this 23 leaders. And um, in their supporters, because it's a big network and very closely knit, family connections and everything and, and their livelihoods because they work for these businesses. They begin to protest quietly. Every day they come out and stand outside this court uh, room or building uh, silently or quietly, peacefully protesting. And then by the time uh, uh, the judge was to announce the verdict, 
they were of course accused of religious extremism and anti-constitutional activity. Uh, yes, the sect or the supporters are ready to revolt, and they do that. They storm a prison. It was the night of 12, 13 May 2005, and then seized the local city administration building, city administration building, and um, free their leaders. And um, yes, and that early, I was in Tashkent, and uh, and a colleague called me early, early in the morning, about six or five uh, on the 13th of May, saying something's going on in Antijan. And, and I called one of the activists there with the sect, with whom I had spoken before, and he said, we are in control of the city, <laughs> which sounded very interesting. And of course, immediately I called the photographer, we're going to the airport, and my sister is also a journalist, I called her, and we all rushed to the airport, and we managed to reach Antijam by noon, because you have to fly and then drive, um, because direct flights were already cancelled. Yeah, we reached there, and yes, we found that uh, town was completely empty, only the central square full of people, and the building is in this rebel control, which was quite surreal. But And later, um, after five o'clock, yes, the government troops moved in and started shooting without any um, warning. And, and the square was full of young children, women, and um, yeah, and armed. But the rebels were armed, uh, had some rifles and something more of cocktails, and they had some hostages and everything. But yeah, but nothing looked like a serious operation. They didn't look like you know militants. Uh, been through whatever serious training or anything, but they did that out of desperation, I think. And I think it was inevitable that Karima would uh, crack down very badly. And uh, so people were shot, they, they were running in all directions, and I happened to be there in the squares view when it all started. And of course, we I am a local guy who happened to be there speaking to me, a young boy who just uh, helped me find shelter and then took me to his place, his family for the night because he couldn't go anywhere. And the next morning, yeah, went back to the square and like counting bodies and looking at all the blood and uh, on the streets. Uh, yeah. And then pretty quickly, um, the the authorities basically block off the city, right? Yeah, After. yeah, it was clear. We we were told to clear off, and uh, because they said we can't guarantee that you won't be taken hostages by terrorists, which, which could be anything. Like could anything could happen to us, and then it would be blamed on terrorists. Um, who, who told so you? Actually, it was yeah. uh, Because we were calling, of course, uh, authorities for comments, uh, officials, 
I was there with my sister and her, at the time, her uh, boyfriend, who was a journalist, too. And uh, yeah, so we were this small group, three of us, and uh, yeah, in one of our kind of contacts with authorities, they said that it's best if we left. But yeah, of course, it was clear that. And then the uh, city was closed and uh, all. Um, yeah, crackdown continued, of course, like, on the like, members, everyone who took part. In this, and, yeah. and, and in the book, you talk about this was also pretty interesting because, I mean, you, you were there, you knew about these kind of this organization uh, led by or led from prison by Akram Yudoshev. Um, you know, you kind of compared this group with its own aspirations to. Um, you actually differentiated from other other um, kind of Islamic organizations that that the state did not look fondly on, um, Hizbut Tahrir, the Islamic movement in Uzbekistan, and, and you differentiate these. But nonetheless, you also talk about the way that the Uzbek government, from the moment of this violent crackdown, um, started to build a story uh, to explain their actions. So, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Of course, it was uh, inevitable that the government would present it as a terrorist revolt, that they wanted to seize power and build an Islamic state. Um, and, um, but at the time, we knew very little. I knew nothing about that network, about the existence of this sect. We only knew of these arrests of these 23 business people. And because they were all denying, like, while I was there talking to everyone, they were, no, the leaders of the uprising, like, they, they admitted that they are an organization. Um, but later, um, uh, all the members who fled the refugees and everything, they all refused to reveal any details. And, and uh, we talked to the leaders of this uprising, and they said they are an organization, and one of their demands was released from prison of Akron Yilbashev. So it was, the connection was clear. They weren't hiding it. But when I came into all this, I didn't know about exactly how it all came about and uh, how they were structured and everything. They were quite, yeah, very secretive. And later it was quite hard to find out more about it. It was only through like talking to people who had been in close contact with them, had business dealings with them and knew them from inside the group who told me uh, about them, like verifying that when I got it through two sources, yeah, and another source which talked to me off the record, then I felt like it looks like, yes, this is, yeah, this is what they were. And, um, but yeah, uh, yeah, they're different. And because IMU, this Islamic movement of Uzbekistan, we emerged only uh, after. Uh, it basically became as such outside of Uzbekistan. Because Lestahir Yildosh and his followers, they fled to 
Tajikistan during the war there, uh, they become even more militant. Yes, there is weapons. There is this environment of, uh, of war environment, hostilities and everything. And then when the Tajik war ended, they went to, to Afghanistan and then that, yes, they became linked with other groups there, the Taliban, and then later splintering and going to Pakistan. They were, yes, already outside and part of a bigger kind of regional picture of militant organizations. And um, and his Butahir, yes, it's also, it came from outside and, uh, and they're non-violent, they say non-violent, they want an Islamic state eventually, but, uh, and they also operate through cells, it's very secretive. Uh, yeah, and it's spread in Uzbekistan, but Tahir Yul, uh, no, Akram Yuldoshev, the founder of his group, he had been a member of his Akhir before and got disillusioned with them because he disagreed on some points, and but then he created his own, but he took some his Akhir ideas and structure a little bit and, uh, yeah, and added his own things. So... Now, I want to ask kind of um, a bigger question here. You know, you've been kind of um, first through your journalism and then I think just kind of through reflection and personal experience. I know, for instance, um, you've been with this question for a long time, but um, I know after the end of John events, you also managed to um, follow some of the refugees that, that managed to leave Uzbekistan through Kazakhstan um, through, you know, the United Nations Refugee Kind of Resettlement Agency. Um, my bigger question is kind of um, how you're thinking um, about the role of Islam, the, the way that the state engages with Islam in Uzbekistan and, and has done so since the uh, 90s. Um, has that changed over time, especially as you've had kind of time to rethink some of these things? Um, you know, you personally, as a journalist, like, has your uh, relationship to this question changed, or has it stayed consistent over time? Um, you know, did, did reflecting on all of these events and and um, talking to different groups and kind of um, coming to your own conclusions. I mean, did that reshape your thinking in some way? Because um, I'm trying to get a bigger sense of how normal Uzbeks in Uzbekistan um, might approach similar issues. The main question is the question of freedom um, and uh, our inability, our inability to be really free. Because in the Soviet Union, we were indoctrinated, or the Soviet people were indoctrinated by one ideology. But when that ideology was removed, people were immediately ready to embrace other ideologies, which could be as like uh, restrictive and um, suffocating and limiting and intolerant of other um, ideas and as a communism, for example, a Soviet ideology. So, I mean, when we're given freedom, we to choose what to believe in, what do we choose? 
we choose something that becomes our new trap, yes, new cage. And uh, I think that's the main question. And uh, Islam or not Islam, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, when we mention this Islam all the time, but what is Islam? Who can define it? Define it? Who can say, yeah, because you you use this word and you mean it means something to you. I use this word, it means something else to me, and, and take someone from this uh, small village in Sarkana Valley and uh, Islam it means something else to them, and uh, that's why we use these words and we define this as Islamic revival or this Islamic sect or whatever. It doesn't matter. I think it only uh, hinders our understanding. Uh, yeah, we can't see the big picture. We can't see. <laughs> we can't get anywhere close. I mean, to true for understanding this. I think all these notions and definitions, they don't help. Yeah, there is no one Islam. There is no, like, uh, I think we're just all uh, vulnerable and uh, too different misleading concepts and, uh, and we are full of our own preconceptions, we approach everything uh, through our kind of prism of our prejudices and our limited knowledge about one thing or another, and we draw conclusions and everything. That's why I don't really want to, yeah, even, I'm not an expert in Islam, but the, and while working on this book, I really tried hard to read, yes, I read books and explanations and academic books and everything. And I understood that it's not possible to define it, it's not possible to, you know. Um, yeah, as well as any other ideology. I think we, we can, what what happened in Uzbekistan? Why all these radical groups or whatever? It is quite a simple uh, human psychology, which is same everywhere. Yeah, and uh, somebody starts preaching something, they um, and they believe in their that they're right, that others are wrong, yeah, and and that sense of righteousness and that sense of knowing the truth and then they begin to preach that to others and, uh, and if they are ignorant enough they will believe you uh, and then you and they end up yes and they were told that this is Islam and you can tell them this is this or this is that and they will believe yeah so yeah, we can talk about all the Islam being divided into different schools, madhabs, and that uh, what Quran is, how it was written, and this hadith, and everything. But at the end of the day, yes, it doesn't help <laughs> to understand anything. Yeah, it's just like mm -hmm. we're just um, ignorant people uh, with our limited. Uh, 
minds <laughs> and full of our um, conditioning and prejudices. Yeah, we can't judge others. And that's what I understood about this whole thing. Um, is it Islamism? Okay, because we, we use these words. Okay, I use them too, but for me it doesn't mean anything. It's just people believing into some, I don't know, some idea that was like imposed on them or because, because they can't see beyond that. At the moment, they can't see. Yeah. Thank you again, Bagila, for sharing. Um, and, and thank you again for um, not only sharing that, but, but talking to us about your book. Um, and I would definitely encourage listeners, um, journalists, academics, um, anyone interested in Central Asia to, to give it a read. Um, and I think they'll certainly get, get a lot out of it. Um, and usually at this point, we're, we're coming to the near, near the end of the interview, but I usually like to give listeners or um, the interviewees kind of a chance to talk about either some new projects um, Kind of give them an opportunity to re- reflect a little bit on uh, the future of, you know, this is the, the Central Asian Studies channel, so the future of Central Asian Studies, what they'd like to see happen, or uh, to recommend uh, some some new reading uh, to our listeners. So, um, if you'd had any, if you have anything you'd like to share, we'd we'd love to hear it. Me in Central Asia Studies, I would like to see more researchers from the region itself. And, uh, and I also really would like them to be more independent. And uh, because, yes, uh, yes, the fun, there is this funding issue, and often it happens that they can and they seek, of course, funding in from Western institutions, and uh, and uh, they go to the West. And I, but I, but I really hope that they will stay independent in their research and because in the West, I, I, what I mean to say, I don't want them to look at the region from Western perspective. Westernized, there is a danger, yes, because of funding, because of like they in these like, institutions and they have mentors and everybody who will be guiding them. And, um, but I think we really need um, yes, unknown researchers who, who are willing to also free themselves from their own conditioning and see see that we have, of course, a Soviet past. There is this, and then uh, and after the Soviet collapse, we started looking like up to the west and maybe a bit. And, uh, with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.